Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 26th episode of the Not A Cast entitled Best Friends Forever, an analysis of the Game of Thrones' John 4, in which Jon Snow heroically defends Samuel Tarly from Sir Alistair Thorne's bullying, makes a friend for life in Sam, and takes another step forward towards his becoming the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., Wolfman Zack, and our newest Lord Commander, Sir Joe L. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, gentlemen, indeed, and welcome to the pack, Joe. Yeah, man, thanks, and welcome. Our spoiler warning, as we talk about in every episode, we'll be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So as we talked about in our episode last week, we'll be doing one question per week for all of our patrons who subscribe for $10 or more a month. So if you, just as a quick plug, if you subscribe to our patron for $10 or more a month, you get the ability to ask us a question if you'd like to, and a question that we will have to answer on this podcast. So our first and only question this week comes from Sir James R.W., who asks, My question is, what is your favorite question and favorite set of answers from the long-running Nerdstream era blog's Supreme Court of Westeros series, which I miss terribly? I miss that, too. That was one of my favorite things I used to read a couple of years ago. I think it was a great thing that Stefan Sass and Amin Javadi from the podcast Vice and Fire did. And I loved seeing all the different answers and responses. And I believe, Emmett, you and I both were guest justices at different points in that series, correct? I actually was not. I never actually uh, got around to it. We made plans and then uh, something came oh. up. But I, I was always but I loved I loved your appearance. And I've always been a big fan of the of the series for sure. Oh, well, my, my mistake. It is. It was great, and I'm sorry you didn't get to answer any questions. I'm sure maybe someday after The Winds of Winter comes out, Stefan and Amin will get back towards it because they did kind of exhaust it. I mean, one of the rulings they have for my favorite is going to be in the hundreds. They have hundreds of rulings on the podcast. I think they go to all the way up to 170 rulings in total, and it's a great a little thing if you guys want to check it out if you're not familiar with it, in which they tackle all sorts of topics. My personal favorite ruling, though, to answer Sir James's question, was ruling 131, which talks about whether Robert wanted to fight Mance Raider, what's up with the Owl Faces, and my own kind of wheelhouse, the thing that I really like, is who are the Golden Company's friends in the Reach? And I believe both Emmett and I think that Randall Tarley will be one of the friends in the Reach, and it's likely, in my opinion, that Mathis Rowan will likely turn too. But I like them identifying someone that I hadn't necessarily thought all the way through, and that is Orton and Taina Merriweather. Now, if you remember from the story, Taina is Cersei's friend in A Feast for Crows. Orton is a part of the small council for a little while. And then after Cersei's arrested, they both flee back to Longtable, which is in the Reach. And in my opinion, I think that Merryweathers are likely agents of Varas, although I've also seen the theory put around that they're agents of Doran Martell, potentially. So I always like the idea that the Merryweathers are agents of Vars, and I like that all three of the justices there do finger Taina Merryweather and the Merryweathers as potential supporters of Aegon Targaryen, or Aegon Blackfire, rather, in Come the Winds of Winter. What do you think, Emmett? I agree with everything you said there. I think the Merryweathers are definitely a false hope for Cersei. And at this point, I, I kind of get chills when she asks to see Taina again yes. uh, in Kevon's epilogue and in a, in a dance, because I don't think her intentions are at all benign. No, <laughs> so, no. So I don't, if, if there's any sanctuary for Cersei during the fall of King's Landing, it would be the West if she makes it out of King's Landing, which I think is going to be a difficult proposition. The Westerlands and Casterly Rock would be her only refuge, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. So what, what's your favorite ruling? 
Mine would probably have to be ruling 104. I love all three questions. Uh, does Melisandre really need King's blood? Which is an interesting debate, and it's fun always to parse Melisandre's words and actions and see what she's really after. What's in store for Garland and Willis Tyrell, who are two of my <laughs> favorite minor characters, and I'm looking forward to seeing them go up against Euron, because that is exactly what Martin has in store for them, and that's just canonical. The, the, the last question, which is bears a little more debate, I think, is what John should have done about Hardhome, which I th- is a really interesting question, and I think really gets at a lot of the core themes and struggles in John's arc as a whole, but especially in dance. And I think all three judges, Amin, Stefan, and Anton Jumelay, who's a philosophy student from the Netherlands, who uh, did a couple of rulings uh, on the Supreme Court of Westeros. I like that they kind of got at both sides of the hard home debate, that it's it's an example of John's heroic human heart in action, trying to save people, and there is some strategic purpose in terms of keeping the whites out of the ha- those people out of the hands of the others as potential whites, but also John kind of over-invests in it, especially after the initial expedition fails, and he's kind of lost sight of the bigger picture in that regard. So I think they, they got that across aptly and ably. Yeah, it's it's a great topic of debate, and I think that's what makes John's arc in A Dance with Dragons so damn interesting, is that yep. they put really hard questions to... George R. R. Martin puts really hard questions to Jon Snow. Things like, should I save Alice Karstark? Should I try and save Arya Stark? Send Mance Raider forward? And then I love the hard home question, because I feel like that's almost one where I personally sympathize with John's rationale. And when I first read the books, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. John should send, you know, his fleet up north to save the wildlings at Hardhome. But when you kind of like unpack it, and this is something that our friend of the show and also uh, esteemed luminary in the Song of Ice and Fire community, Adam Feldman, wrote about, about the Hardhome decision, that it doesn't make a lot of sense in that he's actually endangering a lot of his, his assets for a potentially lost cause. I think Melisandre even says that everyone is going to die or be lost up in, up in Hardhome, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, Mel's got a point there. And I, I agree. It's You can't help but get a shiver down your spine and cheer for John when he talks about, you know, keeping those, those wildlings safe from the others and preventing them from coming back as whites. But, you know, if you think about it, the, the sheer number of whites is not really going to be what tells in this battle. You know, it's, it's, it's the ability to come up with weapons to fight the others and gathering a coalition behind that cause. That's really going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, the, the straw that breaks the frozen zombie camel's back in this, in this scenario. And the overland march that John does at the end of Dance, I think, is just a terrible idea. That he kind of <laughs> almost outlines it in his head that he's, he's really leaving no one to guard the wall which is supposed to be the point. Like, he's losing all these potentially men overland and then taking the wildlings south to fight Ramsay. So I think that really encapsulates how he's he's taken his eye off the ball. But it only works because he's taken his eye off the ball for sympathetic and relatable reasons. If, if that wasn't the case, it wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. So if you folks are interested in some of the stuff that Stefan and Amin do, please do check out Stefan's blog, which is thenerdstreamera.blogspot.com. Or check out a podcast of Ice and Fire or Stefan and Shanti Collins's podcast, The Boiled Leather Audio Art, because those are all excellent. And those are things that certainly inspired me to try and get into a little bit of the podcasting and as well as to kind of think a little bit more deeply about the Song of Ice and Fire as a series. Yeah, those are a bunch of great content creators. There are guys, both Stefan and Amin and all the judges they bring on. They've had Jeff. They've had great people like Stephen Atwell. So check it out for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we appreciate the questions. We will have more next week, and we actually are going to have two questions next week. One of them is going to be embedded in our very episode itself. But this episode is about Jon's fourth chapter in A Game of Thrones, and here is its synopsis. Jon Snow is training his friends in the Castle Black Courtyard when a new boy arrives. 
Nothing worth noting, except this boy is unlike any that has ever come to Castle Black before. Obese and nobly dressed, Samuel Tarley comes striding into the courtyard and into our hearts. Samuel introduces himself in stuttering ellipses. Pip, another newly introduced Night's Watch recruit, puts Sam's accent as Reach and Highborn. While spotted Pip, Samuel is a Reachman, the firstborn son of Lord Randall Tarley, sworn to Lord Mace Tyrell of Highgarden. All the commotion around Samuel stirs Sir Alistair Thorne's emotion. It would seem they have run short of poachers and thieves down south. Now they send us pigs to man the wall. He catches sight of Samuel's expensive southern clothing. Is fur and velvet your notion of armor, my lord of ham? Well, yeah, not so nice. Sam then gets dressed down, literally and figuratively, after Alistair insists that he gets standard issue instead of his specialized gear. Donanoi spends a lot of time taking apart other sets of armor to try and make one fit the boy himself. But even when Donald cobbles together something for Samuel to wear and has him wear his new gear, he looks like an overcooked sausage and can't barely move. But this doesn't prevent Alistair from wanting to inflict harm on Samuel like the fucking psychopath he is. He throws Samuel into the practice yard without training, you goddamn dick, Sir Alistair. Sorry, a little aside there. To fight his strongest boy, Howder. You see, Howder was an apprentice stonemason before he came to the wall, and he was strong and tall. Alistair orders Howder to attack Sam. After a minute of getting the dog piss beaten out of him, Samuel falls to the ground yielding, but Sir Alistair isn't done with him. He orders Halder to hit him until he gets up. When Halder gives Sam a half-hearted smack, Alistair tells him to hit harder, and Halder hits with all of his strength, so hard that it splits the leather and causes Sam to yelp in pain. When Sam can't rise quickly enough for Alistair's liking, he orders Halder to hit him again, but then John steps up to the plate. Halder, enough. Halder looks to Sir Alistair, who retorts, the bastard speaks and the peasants tremble. Sir Alistair is the one who gives commands here, not you, John. Yeah, except the people actually listen to Lord Snow. John repeats that Samuel is yielded, and Halder agrees, lowering his sword. All well and good, except that Sir Alistair has words. It would seem our bastard is in love. Show me your steel, Lord Snow. So then John draws his sword, knowing that he's already pushing the line and not wanting to defy Sir Alistair anymore. Alistair orders Rat, Pimple, and Halder to fight their way through John and attack Samuel. Well, that ain't good. John orders Sam to stay behind him, knowing that he's about to get his ass beat in a 3-1 to one match, but then Pip steps up beside him. He'll fight Shona Barshona, that is Dari for side-by-side, side, with John, and then Gren steps up too. Now it's 3 versus 3, and the whole Castle Black courtyard is deathly quiet until... John attacks Halder, driving him back. He knows his foe just as Sir Roderick once taught him to do, and he knew Halder to be strong but impatient. He hits Halder in the ribs with his blunted sword, and Halder's sword stroke catches John in the shoulder. John notices that Halder is unbalanced and that he cuts him at the knee, driving him to the ground. John turns to see that Gren is standing his ground against Albert, that is Pimple, but Pip is being pressed hard by Rast, that is Rat. He assists Pip first, coming up behind Rast and wringing his noggin with his sword, while Pip slips under Rast's guard and knocks him down. Seeing that he is now outnumbered, three to one, Albert yields. Alistair is angry and calls the training to a halt. Sam and John formally introduce themselves to each other, and Gren and Pip do likewise with Sam. Gren asks why Sam didn't fight, well, Sam wanted to, but he didn't want to get hit anymore. Besides, he's a coward. His father always said so anyways. No one has any words for that, not even Pip, the mummer. Sam apologizes, saying he doesn't mean to be the way that he is before walking off. John calls after Sam to tell him that he'll do better tomorrow. No, I won't do better. I never do better, Sam replies mournfully. John, Gren, and Pip confer again. They shouldn't try to help Sam if he's a coward. People will think they're craven too. You're too stupid to be craven, Pip replies. Gren objects, and then Pip replies that if a bear attacked Gren in the woods, he'd be too stupid to run away. 
Now Grin strenuously objects, I would not. I would run away faster than you. The rest of the day follows a pattern that John has become accustomed to. Some days he spent hunting with Ghost. Others he was in the army with Donald Noy, learning how to smith. Other days he ran messages, stood at guard, mucked out stables, fletched arrows, assisted Bow and Marsh with the inventory. Today, John was tasked with scattering gravel on the top of the wall to prevent people from slipping and hurling to their death below. Tedious work, but John doesn't really mind it. It gives him a chance to think, and think he does. He thinks of Sam and Tyrion wondering what the dwarf would make of the coward. But John muses that Sam had some sort of courage in admitting cowardice. John's shoulder still hurts from the match from earlier. Finishing his work, he watches the sun go down the west and then gets himself lowered to the courtyard and down to his direwolf ghost for supper. But dinner is done by the time John arrives in the common hall. But his friends are still there. Pip is telling stories with different voices, but John also notices Sam is there too, sitting alone, away from everyone. Instead of going to Pip and his stories, John opts to head on over to Sam with Ghost. Samuel is a little afraid of ghosts as he approaches, and he asks if, he's, if it's a wolf. Yes, a dire wolf, John replies. His name is Ghost. It's the Stark Sigil. Sam tells John that his family sigil is the Striding Huntsman. John asks Sam if, if he likes to hunt, and Samuel begins crying. John tells Sam that they should go outside. And what are they going to do outside, Sam wonders? Talk, John replies. Outside, Sam and John's breath frosts in the air, and Sam comments that he hates the cold, and that he hadn't seen snow until he was in the Barrowlands. At first, Sam thought it was beautiful, but it kept falling, and it was oh so cold. Anyhow, they look up to the wall, and Sam worries that he'll die if he has to climb the wall, but John assures him that there's a winch that they can pull them up. But it's so high, and Sam is afraid of heights. At that, John kind of loses it. Are you afraid of everything? I don't understand. If you are truly so craven, why are you here? Why would a coward want to join the Night's Watch? Sam doesn't immediately respond, and then he begins sobbing. His sobs are only interrupted when Ghost comes over and begins licking the tears off Sam's face. Sam is startled, but his feelings turn to joy and he laughs with John as Ghost continues to lick the tears from Sam's face. John tells the story of finding the diaries in the snow, and then we get into some real interesting territory. John talks about a dream that he has, about Winterfell. He's walking down an empty hall in Winterfell shouting for his family, for Arya, for Rob, for Uncle Benjen, but no one answers. This causes John to think about Benjen. He's still missing. Corrin Halfhand has got out from the Shadow Tower, one of the few Night's Watch fortresses that are still manned, and they had tracked Benjen north until they got to the Stony Highlands where Benjen's marks suddenly stopped. Sam asks if John ever finds anyone in his dream. No one, John replies. Winterfell is empty in every dream. Not even the ravens are in the rookery, and the stables are full of bones. Uh, I'm kind of getting a certain vibe on that one. I think we're going to talk about that one a little bit later. Anyways, in the dream, John runs through the halls of Winterfell, throwing open doors, screaming for someone, for anyone, and then he ends up at the door at the crypts, and he doesn't want to go down, but he knows he has to. You see, John is afraid of what's waiting for him down there. The old kings of Winter and their direwolves might not be too fond to see John, and even if John screams that he's not a Stark, he still has to go down. As he descends in his dreams, it grows darker and darker with no torch in hand, and then John screams and wakes at the same moment every time. Sam asks if, if Sam dreams of Horn Hill. He doesn't. He hated it at Horn Hill. Samuel explains the history of the Tarleys and how they were bannermen to Mace Tyrell, Lord of Highgarden again, and the Tarleys have wielded a Valyrian steel sword known as Heartsbane, and then Samuel tells the story of his relationship with his father. You see, Lord Randall Tarley was a man's man who loved fighting, hunting, killing, and being a dude, but Samuel wasn't that way. He liked to wear soft clothes, he loved lemon cakes, books, kittens, and dancing, and he hated the sight of blood. Lord Randall tried to make Samuel into a man with a dozen masters of arms, different and abusive training methods, and Lord Randall even brought warlocks over from Karth, who bathed Samuel in the blood of Arax. Sam didn't take to any of this. In fact, with those, with those warlocks, he even puked into the bath of Arax's blood. The warlocks were then scourged and then sent away. 
But finally, after Sam's mom bore Lord Randall three more sisters after, after Samwell, she finally bore him another son, Dickon, who was more in the vein of Lord Randall. After Dickon's birth, Randall began ignoring Sam, and Sam had known some peace, until his 15th name day when Randall's men woke Samuel early in the morning, mounted him on a horse to visit his father out in the woods. There, Samuel came across Randall skinning a deer, and Lord Fuckface had something to say. And I'm going to read this. It's kind of a long quote, but it's kind of chilling, all, all the same. You are almost a man grown now, and my heir. You've given me no cause to disown you, but neither will I allow you to inherit the land and title that should be Dickon's. Heartsbane must go to a man strong enough to wield her, and you are not worthy to touch her hilt. So I have decided that you shall this day announce that you wish to take the black. You will forsake all claim to your brother's inheritance and start north before evenfall. If you do not, then on the morrow we shall have a hunt, and somewhere in these woods your horse will stumble, and you will be thrown from the saddle to die. Or so I will tell your mother. She has a woman's heart and finds it in her to cherish even you, and I have no wish to cause her pain. Please do not imagine that it will truly be that easy should you think to defy me. Nothing would please me more than to hunt you down like the pig you are. His arms were red to the elbow as he laid the skinning knife aside. So, there is your choice. The Night's Watch? He reached inside the deer, ripped out its heart, held it in his fist, red and dripping. Or this. Well, that made the choice pretty easy, so Sam went north to the wall. And after that story, the boys sit in silence for a moment until John says that they should head back into the hall to get some hot cider or mulled wine and listen to Darian sing some. But Sam knows that Sir Alistair is going to make him fight again, so he takes his leave to get some rest. But John heads back into the wall anyways and begins talking with his boys. They think that Sam is a craven, but John's not allowed them to do their thing. So he gives them instructions on what's going to happen tomorrow. He convinces everyone that they are going to not beat the shit out of Samwell, everyone but Rast. Rast is going to cut himself a slice of bacon from Sir Piggy. He then laughs in John's face and stalks off. Later that night, John, the boys, and Ghost pay Rast a little visit. They hold him down while Ghost jumps on Rast's chest. John holds a knife to Rast's throat, nipping it. Remember, we know where you sleep, John tells Rast. The next morning in the castle yard, the boys danced around Samuel, ensuring that they didn't hurt him. Sir Alistair raged and screamed at them to no avail. John's boys would follow their true leader's commands, though. And then things got a little bit better for Sam. Two weeks later, Sam finally joined with the other boys at eating with them, joining in kind of their fraternal organization and their friendship. And later, Sam came to John's cell one night and told him that he didn't know exactly what John did, but he knew he did it. You see, Sam had never had a friend before until John. We're not friends, John says. We're brothers. And so they were. John would always love Rob, Bran, and Rickon, even if Catelyn had seen that John would never be a part of them. But his true brothers were now at Castle Black. His dreams of Winterfell would always haunt him, but he had a home here among the misfits of Westeros. Benjen Stark had spoken truly about the bonds of brotherhood in the Night's Watch. And John hopes that he would see Benjen Stark one day to tell him. And that's the Game of Thrones John for a long chapter. But in my opinion, a really good one. Right, Emmett? Eh, is it though? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. It is a very, very good chapter. It's really well-constructed, really well-paced. It's exciting at some parts, chilling in others. I was on the edge of my seat while you were describing the the three-on-three fight in the training yard. Like, what's going to happen? Even though I I know what's going to happen. So well done, sir. I started off a drag on the last episode with Edward V, and I'm going to do the same here. Welcome to the negative cast, apparently. (laughs) This is just how we do things from now on. No, I mean, for me, this is kind of a transitional moment in the book because... A couple chapters from now, the plot really starts with Catelyn Five when she snatches up Tyrion, and things. That's that's very clear. Like the first act break in a Game of Thrones. Yes. Uh, and like, and the second one being Ned's downfall. If you want to separate them, Game of Thrones into three acts, that's very clearly when those moments happen. 
I don't love this chapter quite as much as I did John 3. And it, again, it's a really good chapter for me. If it suffers at all, it suffers only in comparison to a chapter I really love. What I did love about this chapter, that chapter as we got into in, at length in our episode on it, is how well it fit snugly within the structure of your classic coming-of-age fantasy story. The details were surprisingly political and really emotionally delivered. Yeah. Uh, it's an example of how the themes and the prose of the series can elevate what could be pedestrian and predictable material. John Ford does not have quite that same elevation for me. It doesn't surprise me in the same way. Like as, as I remember reading this the first time, and as soon as Sam comes in, I'm going, oh, okay. I wonder if Alistair's going to set all the others on him, and then John is going to defend him, and then they become best friends. And this is a lesson for John in terms of heroism and leadership, and, and that's exactly what happens. Yes. That's not, that doesn't make it bad. It's still really well executed. I did, when I first read John 3, I did not expect it to become a chapter about class disparity in Westeros. That surprised me. That, that intrigued me and drew me into more about what was going on with the Night's Watch and the characters therein. This chapter, you know exactly what it's about and how it's going to be about it right off the bat. There are still surprises. I did not expect Randall Tarly to be as vicious as he is. That definitely comes as a surprise. Yes. He did a great job with his his monologue. We'll be talking more about that as we go. Thanks. But that is, that is just very minor stuff off the top. And again, that's not even a, a, a more complimenting John 3 than I am denigrating John 4. So with that out of the way, we can get to the good stuff. So, yeah, I was thinking about that, about how about your points about how this chapter, like you knew that Sam and John would be friends at the very beginning. And I kind of I agree, but I kind of like that at the same time. I do think it's really great how John just kind of looks out for Sam in a way. I think that's really cool that we get that early on that that kind of heroic side for John. But I I totally understand where you're coming from that. Oh, I wonder if they're going to be best friends, if Sir Alish is going to try and set them against each other. But but yeah, I I get it. But I I think there's still there's there's a great emotional core in their friendship, as I'm probably going to talk about a little bit later. But I do think, yeah, there's some wonky parts of that. But I I do love this chapter, though, a lot for the friendship aspect of it. It's very good. I mean, for me, it's very emotional. But uh, the John-Sam dynamic, I don't know. It always struck me like more as a relationship between a superhero and somebody they saved rather than like best friends relating to each other as equals. It doesn't, for me, have the same spark as Ned and Robert where you can really sense the emotional history. And that's, of course, because John and Sam are just starting their friendship. So that's not entirely fair comparison. And I do love their... I I love some moments they have together in this book. I really love the moment when Sam calls out John on being an asshole about what it means to be a steward and not understanding what that means. That's really great. That seems... And then John apologizes. That seems like a moment they're relating to to each other as equals. I don't know. After this book, it kind of seems like John is always annoyed with Sam. Like when (laughs) Sam comes, comes to him at Craster's Keep... And then, like, a storm of swords after they all get back to the wall. And then in, in dance, when, like, John is yelling at Sam and, like, not even paying attention when he talks. And that's all a product of John's arc, and it fits perfectly there. Uh, sure. And that's kind of what, kind of why I like the line at the end, we're not friends, we're brothers. And maybe sure. that's the best way to think about John and Sam's dynamic, is that more even than best friend bond like Ned and Robert, they are comrades. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something you can see develop over the course of this chapter, because, of course... The way this chapter follows up on John 3 is all about John taking Donald Noy's lesson to heart and learning to be learning to be a leader in some really positive and interesting ways that, of course, contrast with Sir Alistair Thorne and with Randall Tarley. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, I do think it's going to be interesting as we progress through John's arc and eventually get Samuel's chapters, how they, they do. John does seem annoyed with Sam in a lot of ways, but at the same time, as we start getting 
further into who they are as characters that they both almost complement each other. You have John as the leader, oh, yeah. the swordsman, the military man, but you have Sam as kind of the brains behind the operation too. I mean, it's by the end of A Storm of Swords, Sam is the one who partially orchestrates John's election as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. So I do like how Sam's intelligence that we even get to see a little bit here and his sort of bravery too because I think it's really fascinating too that you know Sam the coward is the one who kills the first other that we know of in the story right he's the guy who actually kills the first other with the uh, with the obsidian blade or the dagger that he's that he has from the cash that was left at the fist of the first men I love that I that thing that you uh, from the chap that thing from the chapter where John notes that Sam has a queer sort of courage, and I think that really sets the foundation yes, for yes. Sam having some genuine, real, authentic courage and bravery in facing down a White Walker come a storm of swords. Yes, he is the stuff of heroes after all, and I love that too. Although I also love that most people don't believe him. Like when he gets to Craster's Keep, and like even his friends are like, okay, seems <laughs> kind of like a weird story. And then, and even better, at the like, end of A Feast for Crows, when he just tells it all to Lazy Leo, like, for no reason. And he says, yeah, they call me Sam the Slayer now. I've been beyond the wall, and I killed another. And Leo just laughs. <laughs> Which, you know, is, is, is cruel, of course. But I like that it emphasizes that what matters is that Sam found the courage and did it. It doesn't matter if he gets praised or even recognized for it. Yeah. What's important is this internal victory. And, like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if Randall hears about it or believes it, like, because it's not about... It's not about, you know, making dad like you. Screw Randall. Sam should do the right thing because Sam is a good person. And I think that fits with a lot of the themes of the series and the way Martin talks about his characters. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Anywho, to the meat of the chapter. So it starts off very clearly in the wake of John 3, when John was offering Gren to, to teach him how to defend against John's attack and taking on a more a, a leadership role in direct contrast to Sir Alistair. This chapter opens with John doing so. He's teaching Darien how to deliver a side stroke, which I love because I, I'm definitely a, a neophyte on, on military matters compared <laughs> to you and some other people in the fandom. But even I know, like, side stroke, like, that's the kind of basic thing Alistair should already be teaching them. Right. Like, the fact that John has to step up, like, this isn't some fancy maneuver only we learned at Winterfell. Roger Cassell invented this move. Let me, it's called the five-finger kung fu death. Let me, <laughs> let me show you. This is, like, 101 stuff. So why hasn't Alistair taught Darian this already? It's a real condemnation of, of his failings as a teacher. Well, it's not just a condemnation of Sir Alistair, too. It's a condemnation of the Night's Watch leadership as a whole. They keep having this guy on as a master of arms. You know, one of the True. things that Samuel talks about in his story about his father is that his father replaced, uh, what do you say, a dozen masters of arms at at Hornhill. And, and granted, the, the reason, the rationale why Lord Randall Tarley had replaced all these masters of arms was because Samo wasn't becoming the man that he that Lord Randall wanted his son to be. But at the same time, replacing a master of arms is does not seem necessarily to be that huge of a deal because it seems like masters of arms kind of come and go. And so the Night's Watch would have the ability, potentially, possibly, to employ someone else. But maybe it's just the fact that there's no one else to actually take up the position besides Sir Alistair. That's hamstringing the Night's Watch leadership, but really kind of hamstringing the entirety of the Night's Watch in whole. 
because all these kids are not learning how to fight until John is actually there instructing them how to properly engage in hand-to-hand combat and engage in swordplay as well. Yeah, you make a great point. It's a systemic problem within the Night's Watch. And you can zoom out even farther than that and, as we've said before, point out that really the Night's model of fighting is not shouldn't be the Night's Watch priority. Like right. Archery should come first, given what their actual job is, that they're defending a 700-foot high wall. Like, if they're going sword to sword with the Wildlings, everything has already gone wrong. Right. This, this shouldn't be, which, of course, you have to train for that. But, you know, this this shouldn't be the foundation and focus of, of your training. But they're kind of locked in that in that martial knight mindset. Uh, and that's something that, that Martin brings up explicitly in Jamie's story. That's one little arc I like with Jamie, that he starts off hating archers as cowards and... It's like a that's like a legacy of his of his youth, but then later, you know, he he acknowledges the you know they have their advantages, and Arya, I like even Arya brings that up too. Yeah. Like she wanted to be a knight, but she could see how archers are good too. That all, all that seems kind of reflect back on this to me that people have lost sight again of the true mission of the Night's Watch, that reoccurring theme, because they're too lost in this image of what a warrior should be, and that of course is perfectly congruent with Randall Tarley's mindset. It's all mm-hmm. it's all one big problem in this chapter. It's all one big pile of toxic masculinity. Oh yeah, like the the idea, the whole idea that Samuel can't, he's not worthy of grasping the hilt of Heartsbane and how Heartsbane is this big symbol for Lord Randall Tarley. It definitely speaks to this noble concept of sword fighting as being the highest and the noblest approach to warfare. And as we're going to find out in this story, that's not necessarily going to be the case and that Archer's play a role in preserving the Night's Watch when the Wildlings come south. And John takes that lesson and begins having the boys that he's now training in A Dance of Dragons learn how to use the bow, because the bow is going to be essential to their survival when the others come down on the wall. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, you're you're defending a 700-foot high wall. That really should be, should be where you're you're placing your emphasis. Sam is the, is the product of all these mistakes and all these concepts of how men should be and how warriors should be, and that you're a failure if, if you don't act otherwise. Like, as we'll see in a couple chapters, John brings up the point to Maester Aemon, well, actually the next John chapter, John says to Maester Aemon, it's just a waste to do this to Sam. Like, he, he, could, he could be so much more useful to the Night's Watch in a different capacity. Yep. And that's a lesson that Randall Tarley didn't internalize either. And the product, the end result of that, of course, is that Sam is, is utterly convinced of his own worthlessness. He's got self, self-loathing that arguably goes even deeper than Tyrion's, really. Uh, yes. At least Tyrion has learned how to mask and kind of function. Sam... Sam can just barely get through a conversation. Like, I love the little details where, like, his first line is, uh, they, they, they told me to come here for training, he said to no one in particular. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a sign of someone with s- severe social anxiety and someone who has never had a friend and always feels like an outcast. Like, he's not making eye contact with anyone. He's not yeah. talking to anyone. He's just saying words in the hopes that someone will tell him what's going on. Yeah. Like, that's, you know, that's not how you walk into the room if you're a confident person. E- even more so is that line... It's just so blunt and brutal. I don't. I don't mean to be how I am. Oh yeah. Like, oh my god. That's just so heartbreaking. Like I don't. Not. I don't mean to fail. Not. I don't. I don't mean to fall short. I, to be how I am. Yeah. This is my identity. This is who I am, and who I am is is weak and worthless and lesser than. It's like you know, if you push that attitude into a kid's head, it wouldn't even matter if if Sam was was fat or you know slow or any of the physical attributes that he could work past yeah it wouldn't matter because once once you instill that into a kid's head it's so hard to 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 get them out of it i mean john and ghost do the best job they can but sam's you know internalized self-loathing still runs real deep in him right up to the point of of calling his own penis a fat pink mass the first time he gets laid even then 
he can't get rid of this mindset. He's, he thinks his own penis looks ridiculous yeah. because of how much his father convinced him that he is a worthless man. It yeah. runs deep. It really does. It really, really does. It's it's so sad. And, and I feel a real kinship to that line. I don't mean to be how I am. Because, I mean, I, I struggle with, with issues in my own life about, like, my own self-worth and different struggles I have in different ways that I have a really hard time kind of like my, my limitations in terms of like how my mind works or how my body works. You know, I, I have that sure, same feeling sure. like I don't mean to be how I am. I wish I could be better, that sort of thing. But the, the, the really great thing, though, is is that even though Sam is the way that he is, he's part of what he is, is that, like we said earlier, that queer sort of courage that that John thinks about while he's up on the wall. Yeah, I love that line. He says that the world was full of cravens who pretended to be heroes. It took a queer sort of courage to admit to cowardice as Samuel Tarley had. Yes. And he thinks about Tyrion's line about most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it. There's there's an honesty to Samuel Tarley and a lack of pretense which contrasts so strongly with someone like Alistair Thorne, who's just all, you know, bluster and growl and pretense. It contrasts even even with Pip, and this isn't a criticism of Pip, but Pip is the, 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 the boy of a thousand voices who can imitate anybody, and Sam cannot be anything other than who he is. <laughs> yeah. He, he, yeah. Has, he, has no, he has no mask to wear, and that's, that's kind of admirable in, in a way. And it's, he's apologizing for it, and that's what he needs to learn not to do. What Sam is is perfectly, perfectly legitimate and valid and fine. He's a wonderful, sweet, smart person. He's given up trying to pretend to be something other than he is. He just he needs to be told that it's okay. Right. He needs to have that. It's not. He needs to have that. It's not your fault. Uh, yes. Monologue slash yes. breakdown from Goodwill Hunting, and that's kind of what John, kind of more or less what John does to him here. Yes, he really does. It's a it's a great moment, and I think it really draws us to think about Sam and the different type of courage that he has. And again, like like we said earlier, he has a real courage as well when he faces down the other, when he lobbies these hard men into supporting Jon Snow's bid to be the Lord Commander. And, you know, when he takes the ship with Maester Aemon onto Bravos and onto Old Town, when he confronts Marwyn the Mage, you know, these types of things are not easy things that anyone can endure. And, and I think it's a great point that you make that you know, Sam has these other qualities that make him a valued asset to the Night's Watch. And I think that's going to be important for Sam's story going forward. Totally. There's the line from the show I really love when uh, Stannis is talking to Sam in the, the Castle Black Library. And Stannis, as we'll get into a little later, is a, a man who has several very clearly pointed, deliberate things in common with Randall Tarley. I, I would definitely bet that Martin is doing that intentionally. But... And I think this is what show Stannis does. Fitz book Stannis. He, he recognizes the value in Sam and tells him to keep reading. That his, his information is going to be of great utility yes. in, the, in the fight against the others. And that he's, he's valuable and that he matters. And that's something that Sam doesn't get, never gets told by his dad. And that this is ex- extremely self-defeating. And like you say, Sam's arc is about developing this courage his father thought he would never had. Killing right. the other. And when he does that... You know, he hears his, his father and all the bullies telling him he's worthless in his head, but then he hears John's voice telling him, do it, do it, Sam, you can do it. So yeah. John, John convinced him that he was worthwhile, that he could pull this off. And yeah, even more so, I love I, when he's electioneering, which I just love that chapter, when he's <laughs> bouncing Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister back and forth. It's so great and so smart. 
and not the kind of thing you see elsewhere in the series because it's, you know, there's not many elections that happen. So there's not much room for that kind of campaigning. No. But I love he's got this line when he's lying to them. And he thinks, oh, my God, what are they going to do to me? And he thinks, oh, wait, yeah, what are they going to do to me? Send me to the wall, <laughs> rip my entrails out and turn me into a white. It's already happened. All the worst things have happened already. And right. I'm still here. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. And that's that's just one of my favorite moments in the series. It's it's you, you, just, you just cheer them on. Yeah. So I think it's a great point that you make about. <laughs> about all the things that, that Sam is and all those great moments that he has. They, they all are, are flowing from the person that he is. And that's in, integral to the story is that George builds these characters like Sam up over time and then has them do amazing and wonderful, or sometimes horrible and evil things too. A lot of it's based around who these characters there are and their origin stories and how they are constantly evolving and, and talking. And just as kind of an aside, I was thinking recently i don't know i don't know if you've seen this Emmett, but there's been that that picture that uh, image macro that's gone around about the different types of people of characters in a song of ice and fire whether they're lawful good or lawful neutral or lawful evil and sure of course so on and so forth and I, and i typically don't i don't like those things because i don't think it speaks to who these characters are and what it the importance of crafting an arc around them. You know, it's it's so important in a song of ice and fire that characters are not always going to be just one way the entirety of the books. They are going to progress and advance in their morality, in their characterization, in their ethics. And Sam is one of those characters too that advances so much by the end of a feast for crows to the point where he's not a different character at all, don't get me wrong, but he is a character that is very much has grown substantially throughout the books. And we see his growth even in this chapter itself. Yeah, he's gained his confidence and he's he's come to understand that his father was wrong. I mean, he yes. never really says that out loud to himself, but that's what Sam realizes. Because at this point in the story, he thinks Randall's right. Like, he hates Randall, he's afraid of Randall, but Randall has convinced him. Because, of course, with all this abuse and humiliation, that I think that's the natural side effect. But then you get this great contrast with how John treats him. John treats him with with mercy and, and sweetness. And there's that, of course, lovely moment when Sam is at his absolute lowest point, when John just asks him, so wait, why are you even here? Sam just bursts into tears. John doesn't know what to do. And then Ghost goes over and licks his face. And it's so cute. <laughs> yes. And it's 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 so... And of course, Ghost is an avatar of John in many ways. So that's just, you know, Ghost... Yeah, there's the line. It was Ghost who knew what to do. And that's just... That's, that's what that moment needs. And just that little gesture cheers Sam up. And yeah. It doesn't, so it doesn't solve his problems, but it, it allows him to start talking about them. Uh, and that, yeah, that's when we get into Sam's story, which is really at the heart of this chapter. Oh my gosh, uh, and there's, yeah. there's, so, there's, there's so much to break down here, as, as we saw in your syno excellent synopsis, sir. There's, there's just a lot going on. Yeah. Randall Tarley, who henceforth be known as Lord Fuckface on the Nauticast, because he is an absolute monster. You know, he's, he, you know, he's like kind of... He reminds me so much of Tywin Lannister. You compare it to Stannis, which he does have some parallels with Stannis and being a martial man and being brave and physically strong. But he is much more. He so reminds me of Tywin Lannister here and how he's a misogynist. He's an asshole. He's a jerk. And he's he's never anything really more than that in the books. You know, when we meet him in A Feast for Crows, what's he doing in A Feast for Crows? He's having people be beaten and whipped he's having women he's basically brutalizing uh female sex workers in in dust is it duskadale or is it um maiden pool it's maiden pool i believe yeah yeah i think it's i think you're right I, yeah I, maiden pool 
uh, like that's the way that that Rand- Lord Randall Tarley is. So you know, sometimes when we hear stories in the in the, in these books about their upbringing, the upbringing of different characters, you have to filter them through the lens of okay, well maybe that's not entirely accurate. Maybe that's your perception on it. But there's nothing in who Randall Tarley is, the character that we meet later in the books, that would lead me to think that Samuel, Tar- Samuel Tarley's story is anything other than accurate. Because Randall Tarley is a fucking monster, and he's Lord Fuckface as far as I'm concerned. Amen, brother. But yeah, he definitely has a lot in common with Tywin as well. But Tywin and Stannis also have a lot in common with well. And True. I think I think you can th- I think you can throw a Victorian into the mix for a certain number of these traits as well. I think Stannis stands out among these pack as the only one of these guys that finds something worthwhile within himself. But you can definitely see Randall as kind of an exaggerated version of Stannis. Like, Stannis tries to ban prostitution. Randall washes their private parts out with lie. You know, uh, Stannis cuts off Davos' fingers but also raises him up to knighthood. Randall just cuts a dude seven fingers off a dude because he dared rob from the gods or some such nonsense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Stan- and Stannis, Stannis is misogynistic as well, but he cuts, he castrates his men who are rapists, whereas Randall tells Brienne that if she gets raped, it's her own fault. Yep. So I, th- I think you can I think you can see both a, a parallel and a contrast emerging there. You know what I take away from Sam's story is an, an inversion of of John three. If John three was about making John aware of class privilege, Sam's story tells him that oh, on the other hand, even if you are at the top of the class pyramid, as Sam is, being the the heir to a very uh, influential and important house in the Reach, there is a a gendered oppression, a gendered privilege that cuts across class because. Sam doesn't meet the, expe- meet the expectation of someone who's supposed to be at the top of the pyramid. So the fact that he has privilege by Donald Noy's definition, that didn't save him. That didn't give him choices. That didn't empower him at all because he didn't fit his father's definition of a man. So at the end of the day, sure, he came north with much finer armor than Rast did, but he doesn't have any more control over the direction of his life than Rast did. Yep. He, he, too, is, is someone who has been rendered powerless and kept in a cage. And yeah, what Martin is emphasizing over and over in this story is... That Randall Tarley is not what he thinks of himself. He's not a tough but fair pragmatist just looking out for the greater good of his house. No, he's just the worst. Yeah. He's, not t- he's not toughening up Sam. He's just slapping and starving and humiliating him. This is just this is just sadistic. Yes. That wouldn't be acceptable even if it quote-unquote worked, to be clear. Even if it made Sam tough, that's still just not a way to treat your kid no. or any kid. No. But, but I think Martin is making the point that it didn't work, that it was a waste of time. That there, there's not even the the harsh pragmatic, even the harsh pragmatic justification falls apart if you actually look at what Randall is doing and what it did to Sam. It had the exact opposite effect he wanted, and as as uh, Sam says, it it went from disappointment to anger to loathing. So at a certain point, Randall was just doing it to hurt Sam, and had given up hope of actually turning him into the man he wanted. It's it's constantly gendered. And this is something that comes up a lot in Sam's stories that women tend to like Sam and understand him and get along with him. Like whether it's Gilly or Arya, Koja Mo, his mother, even Melisandre likes Sam. Yeah. Like she grins at him and te- teases him and calls him Sam the Slayer, which is this weird little intimacy that I don't generally associate with Melisandre. <laughs> but she, she just likes him. Whereas men tend to intimidate Sam and he like loses his temper and tongue and can't like, you know, Elsie Mormont says some nice things to him. But for the most part, that's how it breaks down for Sam. Amon is nice to him. But most men remind him of his dad and just leave him stumble-tongued. And 
I think that's, you can see that here because Randall's, what Randall associates with Sam's weakness is constantly associated with, with gender, with femininity. He forces, one of his, with the master at arms, forces Sam to wear women's clothing to, to quote, shame him into valor. So you see this uh, setup where being associated with a woman is shameful and trying, trying to get away from that is what makes you a man. Being, being a man is defined as being ashamed of being a woman is what Randall is trying to get across here. When Randall says that his wife only cherishes Sam because she has, quote, a woman's heart. So a woman's heart is just weak and sentimental and sees the value in a worthless being like Sam, as far as Randall is concerned. All in all, Randall hates Sam in part because he hates women and because Sam reminds him of a woman in his head. And that's, that's an insufficient way to be. You, you can't be a proper man if you are doing things associated with women. If you like, I love the little note that Sam likes dancing, clumsy as he is. Again, like I think of like Sir Roderick's line uh, to Marillion, like about, you know, proper men don't concern themselves with singing. You <laughs> should have a sword in hand instead of a wood harp. Like, obviously, Roderick is not a violent, sadistic dude the way Randall is, but it's the same mindset where it's, there's these clear gender lines and Sam has violated them. It's not just that he's weak, it's that he's womanly. And that's something that Randall cannot stand. Oh, it's, it's super toxic. And Randall exemplifies the, a term that's come into vogue in recent years, which is toxic masculinity, which is that he associates women with weakness, women with emotionality, women with all the things that he despises because he's a man's man. Like he's, he wheels hearts bane. He was, he was leading, you know, Mace Terrell's vanguard against Robert Baratheon and scored the only victory against Robert during Robert's rebellion. And Sam isn't like that. And and the fact that Sam isn't like that just makes him despise his own son. And I just, it makes my skin crawl when I think about a father despising his own son, his own flesh and blood. It's its so ridiculously toxic. Yeah, and, and you have a note here. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to steal your thunder, dude. But you have you call it a silly, <laughs> shallow cult of masculinity. And goddamn, but that is accurate when you're talking about Lord Randall Tarley. He is silly, he is shallow, and he has this concept of masculinity, which is extraordinarily toxic and extraordinarily abusive to someone like Sam. And not just to Sam too, but I, I, but to Dickon too. I mean, we don't get really get to know Dickon as a character really in the books all that well, if at all. Perhaps we'll get to see him a little bit more in The Winds of Winter. But I can't imagine that Dickon has come out of his relationship with his father unscathed either. Or think of Sam's sisters too. He has three sisters according to this chapter and one brother. All these kids are under the thumb of an abusive, shallow, shitty father figure. And it's just heartbreaking when, when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, that's the toxic part of toxic masculinity, is that it doesn't make anybody happy. It doesn't even make the men who are practicing it happy. Victorian's not happy. Randall Tarley isn't happy. Tywin's not happy. We love Stannis, but Lord knows he's not happy. <laughs> so who, who is this system even working for, exactly? What, what is even the endgame? And, and, of course, the response to this often in, when you talk about it in real-world politics is, oh, you're saying you can't be a man's man? You're saying you can't be into hunting and fighting? And it's like, no. The, the point is that you can be a man's man without behaving this way. Yeah. This is, there's, nothing in, there's nothing inherent to being a Ron Swanson type that makes you a sadist. Like, cons- consider what Randall could have done here. He could have forged Sam and Dickon into a team. They could have worked together, grass and huh. viper, like Duran and Oberon. Duran's not a masculine warrior type, but he works well with his masculine warrior brother. Let me even like you say, John and Sam form a pair like that, the warrior and the brain. Like that's a natural team up. If you're if you're looking out for the pragmatic future of your house, why wouldn't you want like Sam at home taking care of the books and making sure and then but if like you Dornish outlaws cross the border or if you bannermen get restless, then you send out Dickon with the sword. Right. 
or look even look at Mace Terrell, who's no one's like definition of a, a generous, open-hearted man. But he didn't like disown Willis when right. Willis failed to live up to his masculine ideal. Willis is still the heir. There's no int- sign that Mace ever intended to disown him. And there's a sense that Willis and Garland worked together hand in hand that same way. Yes. You, you, you look at o- Oberyn. Oberyn is the ultimate, you know, dashing, dangerous, charismatic warrior, masculine ideal. There's no sign that he has ever looked down on his older brother for for not being that. And there, he's he's got he's stayed in contact with Willis, and they seem to have a strong friendship. There is nothing about being a masculine, muscly dude with a sword that automatically turns you into an asshole. If you are a mus- muscly, masculine dude with a sword and you're an asshole, you're an asshole. That's just what that is. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And, and, that's, and that's what Randall is. And I think you ultimately see that at the end of that speech when he tells Sam that he would, he would enjoy hunting him down, that he would take pleasure in it. Because, because this is not about the image of the house because he specifically says he'll have a cover story. So this is not what anyone will know. This is purely for him, and he's going to like it. So what makes him different from Ramsey at that point? He's just hunting down people for sport. Nothing. So there you have it. Ra- Randall Ramsey Tarley. That's his nickname. Pretty Lord much. Fuckface, the Ramsey of the Reach. <laughs> that's great. We're going to go with that there uh, going forward. Lord Randall Ramsey the Fuckface. Lord Fuckface. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, but there's there's an interesting thing about the story that Samuel tells about his upbringing at, at Horn Hill and about Randall. And there is a consistent imagery surrounding the heart and different things about the heart that come yes. into focus here in this in the story that Sam tells. Yeah, it's a, that's a really interesting note to, to see upon reread. That's that something that seems pretty clearly delivered by the author is scenting the imagery around hearts. Randall pulls out the dear heart and says, this is going to be your fate if you defy me. Uh, he's, his sword, of course, is called Heart's Bane. And then he says, again, like it's, it's his Sam's mom's woman's heart that leads her to cherish him. One gets the impression that Randall is disdaining the human heart. That, like, you know, his sword is, is called Heart's Bane. Like it's, I mean, obviously that could be a reference to the animal. But the way it's <laughs> spelled and set up in this chapter, it seems like he's, he's destroying emotions, destroying love. He's against these sweet sentimental feelings that John is starting to feel for Sam and that John kind of stands up against that. Again, you compare it to Stannis and the image of the fiery heart that Stannis has, the, has that human heart but is kind of sacrificing it. Randall, Randall just doesn't seem to have it at all. It's the overall portrait is of a man who cares more about his sword than his son. Like that's what's happening here. Randall cares more about this piece of steel than he does his living, breathing child. And uh, you can imagine that John must be thinking about Ned and ice and how what a horrifying concept that would be to Ned to care more about ice than about his kids. Yeah, there's a great also parallel to with Tywin here and that Tywin yes. doesn't really care about his kids. He cares about the legacy of House of House Lannister. So he can be as shitty as he wants to be towards Tyrion he can be as misogynistic as he wants to be towards Cersei. He can treat Jamie as his heir, even though Jamie has forsaken his his heirship of Cashley Rock by joining by joining the Kingsguard and becoming and, and taking on the White Cloak. But that's not important to Tywin. What's important is the sustenance of his house. And like when you take that concept, like for Randall, it's the sword. For Tywin, it's the legacy of House Lannister and about the sins, the supposed and actual sins of his father. Like you, you get a real idea and contrast between between Ned because you're absolutely right. Ned would never treat ice as more important 
than his own children or his own nephew in the, in the case of Jon Snow. So that's a really great point that you bring up. But I think it's going to be a consistent theme of people overemphasizing either physical things like a sword, a castle, a house or or something more metaphysical like a a lineage, a house name or the legacy that you leave behind at the expense of physical, real flesh and blood human beings. And that's really for Stannis. That is a big part of his struggle, too, of him. And I think it's ultimately going to be a struggle with Shireen, as we're going to come to find out in Winds or, or Dream of Spring, about what he values more, whether being this metaphysical hero, last hero, defeating the others, or about preserving the life of his daughter. And I think that's something that George does really well in A Song of Ice and Fire, is having that conflict be present for so many of these characters. And I think when you see someone like Ned, who is living for his kids and, you know, ultimately forsakes his own honor, the thing that makes him who he is by lying and proclaiming Joffrey as the king in order to save his daughter Sansa at the end of A Game of Thrones. I think it makes a very clear contrast to a character like Randall and we're a character like Tywin for that matter, too. I agree. It's it's something of a spectrum. On the one hand, on the one hand, you have Ned, who certainly makes his share of mistakes, but I think has his priorities in the right order. On the other end, you have someone like Tywin and Randall, who not only have their priorities all wrong, but don't even fulfill those priorities, don't even secure that thing they're trying to get, right. all, all their sacrifices for nothing. And then you have, yeah, Stannis is always an interesting case because uh, on the one hand, he you know will, will prove to care more about his duty than his daughter, but also we know from the Proudwing backstory that he does have that genuine emotional attachment, uh, but, but, but seems, seems to have largely suppressed it. So I, th- you know, Stannis is a case I think where Martin is trying to get you inside the, trying to get you inside the head and understand the logic of someone who who would make that decision. Whereas Randall and Tywin both have those like dropping the mask moments when you see the real cruelty underneath, both with their sons. Randall when he tells Sam he's going to hunt him like a pig. Uh, Tywin when he goes on that vicious rant against Tyrion about you know you you are an ill-made spiteful little creature. And, you know, men's laws make me allow you to wear my clothes, but I will never give you the rock. Stannis never has th- that. Because, as Davos says, like, there was no anger in Stannis Baratheon when he cut off his fingers. Only an iron sense of justice. <laughs> Which, of course, that iron sense of justice can lead you to horrible places. That's the whole point of Varus's line about there being no creature on Earth half so terrifying as a truly just man. But it's a different story than I think you get, than you get here. Where all of Randall's self-image falls away and he's revealed as just a monster. Absolutely. And I also think it's it's interesting, too, as a side note, that I would imagine that Samuel Tarly views someone like Sir Alistair Thorne in the very similar ways that he views his father. So he has oh, yeah. yet another horrible, awful, evil, shitty father figure. But then he has someone else in Jon Snow that's going to be there. And Jon is going to be the person that's going to be driving Sam towards being a better version of himself and being someone of value to the Night's Watch. And learn some kind of self-value too for that matter well said sir yeah john is clearly the contrast there and i'm sure john is thinking when sam describes randall tarley like oh that sounds like sir alistair yeah someone who's just beating you up with no real intent or purpose and is just being cruel to you under the guise of teaching you how to be tough and now this is happening again and i i, I can't tolerate this and so he, he he takes that great next step into leadership of getting the other boys to back off sam and i, I love that martin describes as john telling them how it was going to be like, that's, that's just a great line in and of itself, just so declarative and bold. And I love that Martin doesn't 
actually have John say it because that monologue would probably be really corny and we don't actually we don't actually need to hear it because we see we see what John was saying the next day when they don't attack Sam. So we don't need we don't need the whole paragraph of monologue from John. We just need the image of him doing it. Yes. And uh, and I love that and this you know this is kind of this is kind of my, my big summary note for the chapter like you know at the end of John 3 and the start of this chapter the lesson John is teaching the way he's being leader is teaching people how to fight. And it's it's great how he gets there and it's important that he does it, but the way he's being a leader at the end of this chapter is by telling them not to fight, not hmm. to attack. That's great. To pretend, to to dance, as as Martin uses the term, to dance around Sam and not lift their swords against him. So he's he's found like this other next layer of leadership, this next level where it's it's not just to teach to attack, it's also to teach not to attack, when to defend, when to protect. Like you know the the, the cliched uh, martial arts movie line, like we. We we learn karate so we may not use it. Right. You know, it's 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 kind of what John is trying to impress upon first Halder and then the rest of the recruits is okay. I'm you know we're going to teach we're going to learn fighting together and teach you these skills, but you have to know when it's appropriate to use them and when you're just being a bully. And he knows that because he was just being a bully in the previous chapter. This is almost like his redemption. It is I'm not almost like this is his redemption. No, you're absolutely right. I think you're you're absolutely right on that. You know, it's also really good training for John as. George is very clearly crafting his arc towards becoming the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. I, I love that oh, line yeah. where John and Sam part ways after being up on the wall where Sam goes back to rest and John goes back to the common hall where it says and that he goes back and he's all like, you know, we need to like try to band together and I have a plan. Here's what we're going to do. And it says John persuaded some, cajoled others, shamed the others, and made threats where they were required. And I love that because it's very much speaking to what John is going to be doing as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch and the ways that he's going to be interacting with such disparate characters as Bowen Marsh, as Tormund Giantsbane, as Stannis Baratheon, as Melisandre Vishai. He uses all of these techniques in order to get his way. For better or, or, for, or for worse, you know, as we're going to find out, come and dance with dragons. But it really does speak to John's ability to lead in that he's convincing these kids not to pick on the fat one, not to pick on the one that is the weakest and most susceptible to bullying and to pick on the one and not to pick on the one that has been at the brunt of all this bullying and toxic abuse that's been occurring in his life throughout. And he uses some great methods. And I, and I do wonder, like, did he pick up on this by watching Ned act as Lord of Winterfell? That's how he's able to be in this leadership role at this extremely early stage because it's, you know, John's not going to become the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch until the end of A Storm of Swords, some two books later and probably some year and a half or so after this event. But it seems very clear to me that George is portraying John as a leader and in a leader role right now. And that's going to have impacts for John's arc when he becomes the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. I totally agree. There are some long, clean narrative lines connecting this chapter to John in a Dance with Dragons. And yes, I agree. I love the his range of tactics is great. He's not just they're not just all immediately ashamed and they get on board right away. That wouldn't seem particularly realistic. It wouldn't really have an impact. But yeah, he persuades some, shames others, made threats when threats were required, uh, including to Rast, which is just a wonderfully creepy little scene. When Ghost, like, nips his neck yeah. a little bit to draw blood. Again, it's direct contrast to how Ghost is with Sam, when Ghost was, like, you know, licking his face like a, like a cute pupper does. Uh, it's it's that uh, that duality, like we were saying, that, that irreducibility that makes A Song of Ice and Fire so great, where Ghost is Ghost an adorable dog or a terrifying animal, a terrifying wild animal. Well, he's both. 
Right. And you, you kind of got to you kind of got to live in a world where both those things can be true about one being. Is you know is is, is Sam this this coward or is he going to turn out to be Sam the Slayer? Well, he's going to be both. Like you know, he's he's still afraid of a lot of things when he gets to Old Town. Like Marwin the Mage still just kind of talks over him the whole time because huh. because that's because that's Marwin the Mage and that's how Sam you know handles conversation with men. But he's he's also a genuine hero. So and that's. See, seeing that range in all these characters in this early on is is really exciting. It's, since we know we're gonna they're gonna go and feast and dance, it's definitely reaffirming to see it all in place here. It really is, and I do love how this chapter ends with Sam becoming a part of this brotherhood, and John emphasizing that brotherhood directly to Sam. Uh, but then it's you know it's kind of sad too at the same time because John is then thinking about Benjamin and whether he would ever see him again. It's 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 kind of interesting to me that. Benjamin is brought up repeatedly in, John, in these early John chapters, and even by the end of A Dance of Dragons, we still don't have a resolution on Benjamin's actual fate and where he is. Uh, it's kind of something we haven't really talked about in the in the, uh, the kind of the more detailed section. But I am curious because I, I, I had I had forgotten a lot of the stuff about how Corn Halfhand went up to try and find him, and they had found him leaving his marks all the way up to some place in the Highlands of, in the north somewhere. Above right, the north right. Wall. As always, it's going to be interesting to me what truly happened to Benjamin Stark in these, uh, in, in, after he disappeared, or what happened to him to make him disappear. Yeah, it's in the stony highlands to the northwest, the mark stopped abruptly, and all trace of Ben Stark vanished. So he was, yeah, going off towards the western, the western half of Beyond the Wall, which is not an area we really know about. If you look at the map, our, our chapters Beyond the Wall have kind of clustered more towards the middle and the east. So yeah, that's an area we don't know much about, but that appears to be where Ben Stark vanished. And yeah, he does come up quite a bit in this chapter. This might be a case of when Martin still thought this was going to be fewer books, or that the plot was going to move quicker than it did, that he might have had the plan to bring in Benjamin sooner, or that he would already already have popped back up by now. Because yeah, you're right, this is, this is a lot of setup for a dude we still haven't seen again. Yeah, it really, really is. But... I think that's enough on the depth of the chapter itself. What do you like more, like generally, and what you like dislike more generally for the from this chapter? Sure. What I, something I really liked rereading it was that uh, Halder gets a nice little arc to himself in this chapter. Yeah. And uh, kind of just in the background, uh, Alistair sets him on Sam because he thinks he'll do the most damage. He's the big one. He's Stonehead, uh, Stonemason's apprentice. Yes. So he's got the he's got the huge muscles. And yeah, he's at first he does do the most damage to Sam, but it, it proves turns out that Stonehead does not in fact have a stone heart <laughs> because he realizes that John is right. It's pointlessly cruel to just keep hitting someone who's yielded, even when he has to fight John over that. And John wins; he's not like angry about it. He joshes with him for an instant. I thought I finally had you, Snow. And then, best of all, when John uh, starts talking to the other recruits about how they're going to treat Sam. There's that great moment where Pip speaks up as John knew he would, but then Halder does as well, and that surprises John. <laughs> and that's great that like Halder has internalized this lesson that he got from John in the courtyard, and he wants to he wants to carry it out, and he wants to be better. And that's just I just love that. I love Martin has a real knack for humanizing background characters in a way that feels organic and doesn't feel like he's just stopping the narrative dead so random tertiary character can talk. I mean, sometimes he does that with, like, Septon Marable, but then it's really worthwhile. Sure. In this case, it's it's a wonderfully woven-in little arc for Halder, and it kind of encapsulates the chapter on the whole, that this is this is the impact, this is the lesson learned from this chapter. John has learned that lesson, too, of course, but but it's it's nice that the background characters in this chapter aren't just there for wallpaper, because, I mean, this is supposed to be a chapter about, yeah, the Brotherhood, the Night's Watch coming together, so it's important that we see someone besides John learn lessons. 
Yeah, I think it's a great point. I, I think Halder is, is just a great, super minor character, but he has. I love that he has a little arc. Like, and I think you put it perfectly there. And I love the fact that he's defending Sam and you know speaking up for him alongside of John. And I, and I like that it surprises John. It's kind of again speaks to him as a leader that he's able to be convincing and he's able to do good as a as a convincer and as as a leader in preserving Sam's life. I guess ultimately. And uh, and yeah, I think it's cool that how Halder is a uh, a dude that um, that you just kind of you kind of like him too by the end. I mean, you like him at the beginning too, but you also like him too for an instant. I thought I had finally had you, Snow. I think it's a cool way of kind of like being like good game, bro. You know, I think that's that's cool. You know, be coming from a more sports yeah. background, I think it's good to, to show good sportsmanship and seeing it on the pages in the pages of a Game of Thrones is cool too. Uh, I, I'm kind of like the same way. I, I'm a sucker for the stories of male bonding. And this chapter kind of has it in spades. You talked about with John and Halder, but I also like the John and Pip and Gren interactions. I love the fact that Gren was John's hated enemy in John 3, and now they're like the best of friends. I think it's really, really cool that you have that. And then, of course, you have John and Sam. And, you know, dude, I, I get you, man. Like, you just knew that Sam and John were going to be friends by the, at the start of this chapter. <laughs> it's not really subtle at all, but I kind of like that. I mean, I know I'm stupid. Sure, ugly, sure. But in this here day and age where male friendship is still looked down on and the independent man who don't need nobody but work acquaintances and cold beer at the end of the night is something that is seen as an ideal, which is bad and truly ugly. I really gravitate toward, towards George's writing of a sweet, cool story about boys becoming friends and becoming brothers. Ultimately, I think it's a, a cool thing they write. So, I mean, I, I get where you're coming from, like I said before, but I, I just it kind of warms my heart. And I, I like that. I like having some chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire that, that warm the heart ultimately. Well, you've just grown my Grinch heart three times the size. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I agree. It's, it's non-toxic masculinity. I like, again, this chapter, Martin is not just pointing out how horrible Randall, Tarly, and Alistair Thorne is. He's offering counter-programming. Yes. He's offering a, a way to be in contrast to that. Like you said about Halder's little line there, uh, for a second I thought I had you, Lord Snow. That's a great example. Like, he's not taking it personally. Not everything is about his ego. Not everything is about winning can still be as this physically strong powerful fighter but but not be a jerk about it and and give credit where credit is due and it's it's important to include those examples i agree especially as as i've said elsewhere martin's overall perspective on the night's watch in this first book is pessimistic occasionally to a fault it's 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 nice nice to have these little moments absolutely so we've talked up this chapter a lot. What do you dislike about this chapter? Sure. Well, I, I came up front with, with my major problem, which isn't even a problem. I just think, for me, it's not quite as great as John 3. In terms of a more kind of minor dislike, it st- stuck out to me on reread. When John invites Sam to go out and says, you know, have you seen the wall? Sam has this line, I'm fat, not blind. <laughs> of course I saw it. It's 700 feet tall, which is a funny line. I can see why Martin liked it, but it's a very uncharacteristic line for Sam Tarley, especially at this point when he can barely get through a conversation, when he's having trouble making eye contact with people. He's not going to be, like, he's scared of ghosts. He's not going to be defiant and sassy in this moment. It seems weird to me. It's, it feels more like the kind of deflective snark employed by his HBO counterpart, Jonathan Bradley as Samuel Tarley. Yeah. Uh, has a lot of fun with, like, snarky lines. Like, he asked John to describe Egret, and John just says, yeah, she had red hair. And Sam says, oh, really? How big were her feet? Like, he's just trying to, like, <laughs> taunt John. And then, like, and then, like he asks John, what was it like to be with someone? And John says, you know, it's just wrapped up in another person. And she's with you and you're with her. And I don't know. I'm not a poet. And Sam says, no, you're really not. Uh, that sh- show Sam has a lot of fun with those lines. Book Sam is not snarky like that. No. Or at least he's generally not. So that line stuck, stuck out to me as, as I think it was a, a line that Martin liked, which, you know, it's funny. 
but it doesn't fit how Sam behaves in this chapter, and generally speaking. Yeah, and I, and I do think that Martin sometimes engages in that, where he's he falls in love with a line that doesn't necessarily yeah. reflect who the character is at that moment in the story. In the case of this line, it doesn't reflect who Sam is in the story, but it also doesn't reflect who he becomes later on either. You, you'll see these from time to time, and I, I'll keep an eye out for myself, because I had not noticed that until you had pointed out, and then when you did point it out, I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense, that this isn't a Sam line at this point. You know, a Sam line would be something more like the the wall. Uh, the wall is, is really high. You know, like that. That's kind of like yeah. That fear. He's like Podrick. He's like Podrick Payne right now. He's talking a lot like Pod talks. Oh yeah, like and all, this this would yeah. be like if, if if suddenly Pod snapped his head up and said something sassy to Bron. Like that's the effect this line kind of has for me. It's just it's again it's very minor and like there are many worse sins for an author than just enjoying a line enough to keep it in, even if it's slightly out of character. So. True. A minor complaint. True that. What about you, sir? Yeah, so so my dislike for the chapter is about Rast. I kind of wish there was mm-hmm. something more about him than just being a big, stupid bully. You know, as much as Joffrey and Ramsay are bullies in the story, and Euron for that matter, too, we understand, or we will understand the case of Euron, why they are the way that they are. You know, you have parental abuse, neglect. You have other horrors that are visited on them. But I kind of would have preferred to get some inkling of why the dude is such a fucking asshole. Because, you know, maybe Rast had an abusive parental figure. Maybe he's trying to suck up to Sir Alistair so he won't have to get the same treatment that John and the other boys get. Maybe he has all this rage built up from him from being ugly and being rejected by women. Sort of like Chet is from the, from the Storm of Swords prologue. Or, you know, maybe he's afraid that Samuel is going to take some sort of place out from under him. Or maybe he's afraid of one of the other boys. He's one of Alistair boys and he wants to be maintain his place there, kind of like what Chet is, because Chet is replaced by Samuel in the in the rookery, in, in Maester Eamon's rookery, and back in a in a Clash of Kings and the Storm of Swords. I guess, you know, really all I'm saying is that I it's good I think it's good to have some depth in our villains, even if it's as minor a villain like Rast. You know, we get a whole lot of depth from Chet's prologue chapters prologue chapter from A Storm of Swords where you understand why is the way he is. And I I think Martin does this really well where you understand why a character is a psychopathic bully. Like you, by the end of A Dance of Dragons, you really understand why Joffrey is such a little shit. At the same time, it doesn't excuse him for being such a little shit. The same way I want to understand a little bit more about Rass and about him being why he is the way that he is. We know that he's a raper. We find that out from John's second chapter from A Game of Thrones, but, or rather from Tyrion's second chapter from A Game of Thrones. But I think it would probably be better just to have a little more depth on, on Rast and on, on these kind of more minor villains about why they are the way that they are. They just can't, I don't think it works as well that they're just mean. Be- being mean yeah. is fine, but there has to be a reason for them being mean. I guess that's all that I'm saying. I agree, and it doesn't take much. All you need is one line, like you say. Something about his background, something about wanting to suck up the Sir Alistair. Even, like, have a conniving reason, like, oh, if everyone else is going against Sir Alistair, if I'm the only one who's sticking with him, that'll make him notice me and promote me or something. You know, something. It doesn't have to be, like you say, it doesn't have to be a sympathetic motivation. Right. But it does have to be a motivation. There yeah. has, there does, there, there should be something there. Otherwise, yeah, I think it... Even Sir Alistair has, like, resentment over being sent to the wall and having fought on the wrong side. You know, that's... It doesn't make him a depthful character, but it does make him a person, whereas Rast... I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at when I was saying that this chapter is a little too predictable beat by beat for me. There's yeah. nothing There's nothing surprising about Rast. And I think it would be... 
it, it would it would enhance the chapter if if you just get a throwaway line again like you know the obviously not every tertiary character is going to get a, a whole chapter to themselves explaining their their motivations but do, do a little bit better yeah i agree yeah but this is still a pretty good chapter and this chapter has a whole lot of foreshadowing and groundwork built around it and uh the one we'll start off with is kind of one of the more funny lines from this chapter, which is where Pip is teasing Gren about being too stupid to run away from a bear. And the line is, quote, if a bear attacked you in the woods, you'd be too stupid to run away. What happens when a when a huge, massive bear approaches the Night's Watch on the Fist of the First Men? Thankfully, Gren does have the, the knowledge to run away from that bear. Everybody does accept, uh, well, Thorin Smallwood charges the bear and gets his head removed for it. Which is, it's you know, that's a heroic act in and of itself. It, it definitely saves lives. Uh, but uh, I like that Grin does run away from the bear at that point, but he does he does take a stand after the fist when he stops to make sure Sam keeps going. I I, I really love that because that's a you know again a heroism defined that as just martial splendor, but as, as lifting people up and taking care of your friends. But yeah, it's it's, it's that's a nice little shivery moment to read in this chapter to know that because obviously the undead bear at the fist is one of those like big defining images of the series at least for me yes especially in terms of the, the horror imagery obviously all of sam's first chapter in the storm of swords is like that endless sense memories of horror but that one stands out so I, I like knowing that martin may have had that in mind this early on yes for sure absolutely i i think it's cool that gren shows some character growth and that he does run away from the bear but then he also you know defends sam and insists that he keeps moving i think that's really one of my favorite things is you know Sobbing Sam took, took another step, but he's taking another step because he has these friends and brothers that he makes in this chapter that are that want him to keep moving, that want to preserve his life, and that want to stay brothers and supposed to be enemies. Because as we know, all of those Night's Watchmen who are killed at the Fist of the First Men or on the retreat back from the first, Fist of the First Men are turned into whites that Sam encounters midway through a Storm of Swords. Yes, indeed. Another little bit of foreshadowing connecting to some of the themes we were talking about earlier is uh, we have this you know, speech from Sir Alistair when he's sending people after Sam. The bastard wishes to defend his lady love, so we shall make an exercise of it. Rat, Pimple, help our stonehead here. Rast and Albert move to join Halder. Three of you ought to be sufficient to make Lady Piggy squeal. All you need to do is get past the bastard. So this is not the last time that older watchmen will associate Sam's unwillingness to fight, as well as John's insistence on defending the weak, with femininity and homosexuality in a decidedly derogatory fashion. Uh, Chet makes similar comments in his prologue when he's talking about how much he hates Sam and John. And uh, Lord Commander Snow thinks to himself in dance that there are some senior officers who assume he's only elevating Satin to a squire because they're sleeping together. So again, this is this is a systemic issue. This is not just Randall being a one-off asshole. This is a, a mindset and worldview problem that, will, that John has to keep encountering uh, as he moves up the ranks of the Night's Watch. What assholes? Yeah, yeah, it... it- it is the, that kind of homophobia that's exhibited by some members of the Night's Watch is definitely something that's going to be a recurring motif in the story. It's something that is also going to prevent them from, you know, they all look down on Satin in the story because he was a sex worker in Old Town. But the boy can read and write. They can't look past his sexuality to see the value in him. They they fixate on the thing that they they fear, the thing that they hate, and they don't see the value in that. And that's something that, you know, we see in Sam's story too, where they don't see Sam's value. They focus on his weakness, his cowardice. Whereas Sam is actually has many great qualities and Satin has many great qualities in the story. Yes indeed. They're much like Randall Tarley in that way, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Speaking of Randall, along with all the various men at arms that, uh, mastered arms that is, that come and go at Horn Hill, he also uh, hires some un- unusual sources in an attempt to get Sam to be more manly. Uh, quote, one time, Sam confided, his voice dropping from a whisper, two men came to the castle, warlocks from Karth, with white skin and blue lips. <laughs> so I had forgotten, completely forgotten this before we read that this is the first mention in the series of both the city of Karth and its creepy warlocks who will, of course, take center stage in Dany's Clash of Kings chapters and remain relevant as recently as The Forsaken, Aaron Dampere's release chapter from The Winds of Winter. Yes. So uh, that is one of the weirder parts of the series, is Karth and its warlock. Uh, if I'd, I'd forgotten about this and kind of would have thought about it as just an artifact of writing Clash of Kings, but that may well have been in the, in the cards for Danny uh, while, while Martin was writing this first book. Yes, because as we know from the way that A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings were written... George R. R. Martin essentially had, essentially was writing a Game of Thrones, and then realized that it was getting too long. So he, that's where a Clash of Kings come from. So he took about three hundred to four hundred pages that were supposed to end a Game of Thrones and rework them and rewrote them into the opening chapters and opening plot lines from a Clash of Kings. And I have to imagine that Danny's first and second chapters were among that batch of pages that were sent to A Clash of Kings, which would, to me, indicate that Karth was going to be coming up there and that maybe George R. R. Martin decided that he wanted to go back to this early chapter from A Game of Thrones, early-ish, I guess, because I guess we're kind of mid-early part of Game of Thrones still, and write the Warlocks in and Karth in as well so that we would be like, hey, we know these people because Samwell encountered these folks back in uh, in, in John's fourth chapter from, from A Game of Thrones. That seems kind of a writerly thing to do, I think. I think that makes complete sense, especially since, as I said, it kind of stands out in a paragraph that's otherwise about masters at arms and what they're doing with Sam. And then suddenly, oh, magic men from the city across the <laughs> sea. So that that may well be that Martin dropped it in later to establish bits of uh, kind of a world building paper trail, so to speak. Well, here's the, here's the thing. Uh, here's the thing, too, about yes. the, the warlocks. I think this might also be an early indication that they're all full of shit, you know, because. Yeah. In yeah, this, good point. Yeah. In this chapter, you know. They bathe Sam in, in Aurochs blood, and he's supposed to emerge from this sacrifice, this kind of blood magic thing as this strong warrior type. But Sam isn't changed. And then when Danny encounters these folks in A Clash of Kings, they are completely full of shit. Now, granted, they do get have some sort of magic involved in what they do, but they're not out for Danny's best interests. And they don't, the only magic, and this is probably more of a, of a longer theory type thing, but I think the only magic that the, the Warlocks actually have is whatever magic Danny brings to them with the birth of the dragons or potentially the idea that magic itself is reawakening in the world and now they're just kind of catching a piece of it in the House of the Undying and the other things that they do that are a little bit more on the magical side in the series. Yeah, they're, they're mostly just kind of drug-addled failed sorcerers. They're kind of like an even less impressive version of the Pyromancers in King's Landing. Yep. Even the Undying who have advanced to this massive stage, they just they don't do anything with their powers. They just kind of sit around that table for all eternity. Yep. Uh, you can kind of see Euron as an example of what a warlock would be like if they actually got weaponized and were actually you know, put to work out, out ending the world with their powers. But yeah, I, I agree that this is an early sign that they're they're uh, uh, full of BS. And I like that it's emphasized in this way that the the sacrifice ritual, which has certain things in common with, of course, uh, Azor Ahai and other sacrifice rituals and other traditions and stories, that it, it doesn't work to make you a warrior, which I think is an early clue 
that, you know, say Stan is burning Shireen is not going to work. And that maybe there's more to the Nissa Nissa story and that there's, there's, there's something more to being heroic than just killing an animal and bathing yourself in blood and asking the gods to make you a hero. Yep. That, that blood, blood sacrifice might have its utility in certain circumstances, but it's not what makes you a hero. Yeah, great points. Great points. So speaking of voyages to the east upcoming, huh. uh, there's a setup here for the Night's Watchman character of Darion, uh, who is John is training at first at, at this, as the chapter opens, and then invites Sam to come listen to him sing. Quote, Some nights Darion sings for us if the mood is on him. He was a singer before, well, not truly, but almost, an apprentice singer. <laughs> How did he come here, Sam asked. Lord Rowan of Golden Grove found him in bed with his daughter. The girl was two years older, and Darion swear shelped him through her window, but under her father's eyes she named it Rape, so here he is. When Maester Eamon heard him sing, he said his voice was honey poured over thunder. Obviously, there's foreshadowing there for Darian's resentment towards the Night's Watch and his his unwillingness to be there. Comes up again when John is whining about not wanting to be a steward, and Darian says that it's unjust that he's there. So that's set up for Darian's desertion in A Feast for Crows. And again, and here's an example of a minor villainous character having an understandable motivation, unlike Rast. Yes. Like, we get why Darian doesn't want to be there and why he wants to leave. But on the other hand... Who knows if he's actually telling the truth about what happened at Golden Grove. He well could have been raping her and is just denying it now. Right. Uh, that's entirely possible. And what really kind of strikes me as foreshadowing of his, his cravenness is the fact that Maester Eamon is praising him. But oh, yeah. Maester Eamon is the one Darian will desert to his death. Like, that's such a, what a, what a cruel thing. Like, this, this nice old man who said something kindly about your voice and you're just abandoning him to die. Darian is actually one of my least favorite characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Not, not that I think that he's Solid. poorly written, but like he he represents I, I, I'm having a hard time putting my finger on it, but he represents some sort of like kind of low evil. I, I don't know if that's the best way of putting it. Like when he abandons It's really wretched Sam, yeah, and go pathetic, ahead. yeah. I was gonna say it's just really wretched, really pathetic and petty. There's nothing grandiose about it. It's just ugh. Yeah, like when he abandoned Sam and Maester Eamon, like I, I just remember being so angry when I read that for the first time in A Feast for Crows, when he's there like hanging out at the bar, playing with the, um, at the, where is he? Is he at the end of the, um, the Eel Inn? Is that where he's at or, or in Bravos? I forget. I forget. Bravos has so many inns and pubs. I forget which one he's at. But yeah, he's abandoned his vows. He's not wearing black anymore. And, me, uh, and meanwhile, the dude yeah. that praised him and was saying that he was such a great singer is there dying on a ship and he won't lift a goddamn finger to help him. Like it, it, it's infuriating. It's kind of infuriating in that way of like, <laughs> and, the, and this is, it's not the greatest example, but in the way of somebody cutting you off when you're driving sort of way. Um, <laughs> sure. sure. It's, 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 it's not like Tywin Lannister, like destroying the riverlands and killing peasants. Or it's not Ramsey snow, like raping Jane Poole and doing horrible things to the peasants in the north, it's it's much more of a of a common. It's like the common kind of the commonality of evils type of thing more than anything else. Like that he's abandoning the dude who loved him and thinks that he's great to just to die because he won't lift a finger to help him. It just pisses me off, man. That dude just pisses me off. Yeah, it's, it's a cowardice and a kind of like sin by omission, a, a kind of lazy cruelty, a passive evil. Um, and I like it too because Bravos is so often romantically presented as the city of exiles. Right. It's where you go for refuge, like, you know, whether you're Danny or Arya or whoever else. But this is one case where it's almost a negative spin. Like, Darian shouldn't be going into exile. Like, this is this is a bad case of the romantic uh, refugee washing up in Bravos because he has he has something he should be doing and he should be getting back to it. Yep. So I think that's 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 a nice little touch. 
It is that. It is that indeed. So uh, one little bit that is not necessarily foreshadowing, but I hope it is, is when John is walking along the wall and, quote, he could think here and he found himself thinking of Samuel Tarley and oddly of Tyrion Lannister. He wondered what Tyrion would have made of the fat boy. And I really hope we get to find this out. Yeah. I really hope Sam and Tyrion meet at some point. They've got a love of, love of books in common, which seems like it could prove important. And I think they just have interesting things to say. And a lot of things, we were comparing Tywin and Randall. They'd have so much to say about their dads to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, geographically, who knows how that works out. But obviously, Martin can make anything he wants to happen in that regard if he really wants to. So uh, I, I really hope this proves to be foreshadowing. And Tyrion does have interesting things to say about Samuel Tarly. You know, I would think they'll eventually meet up in the books. I mean, I I think they haven't done it in the show yet, have they? Because Sam is up in Winterfell no, and Tyrion is Sam on Dragonstone right and then old- King's Landing and then they're on their way up to Winterfell on, on the ship. So I, yep. I think they'll eventually meet up. I think that seems like a... I think Martin loves his like little interactions with people. He loves to kind of throw people sure. in a room that have common or different interests. You know, we've, we've talked about before about how great it's going to be when Tyrion encounters Marwyn in the Winds of Winter. Or oh, when, yeah. Oh, yeah. Know, Tyrion meets up with Makaro again. Like these types of characters that are really interesting and present a contrast to Tyrion. But in the case of Sam, he's very similar to Tyrion. So I, I would love to see what Tyrion's reaction to Sam is going to be, whether it's going to be a mutual admiration, which you would hope, right? Or if it's right. going to be something like jealousy or anger, or I don't know if you've ever met those folks who would say something like people that are like that remind me of myself. I don't I just don't like those types of people. I, I guess we'll have to see where, where Tyrion is at that juncture in the story and what his mentality and and his where, where his head is, really. I think it's going to the Winds of Winter is going to be an interesting place and in where we're going to see how Tyrion evolves because he's in a dark place oh, yeah. even by the end of A Dance with Dragons. Is he still going to be there at the end of, end of the Winds of Winter when he could possibly meet Sam or early in A Dream of Spring, for that matter? Very good points all, sir. I'm curious if, you know, Tyrion obviously is in a very dark place right now. If he pulls back in any respect to whatever extent, I wonder if Sam could be part of that, given that they have some things in common. But Sam is kind of more optimistic and uh, and is is sticking to what he loves about the world. So that, that would be an interesting dynamic to see, for sure. And will that... Will that obviously kind of a lodestone of potential foreshadowing is John's dream about Winterfell, which is comes up a couple times again later in the series. Versions of this dream, he talks about uh, I found myself in front of the door to the crypts. It's black inside, and I can see the steps spiraling down. Sometimes somehow I know I have to go down there, but I don't want to. I'm afraid of what might be waiting for me. So there's a there's a number of things obviously that could be pointing to uh, something hidden in the crypts. Is it purely symbolic about, you know, Lyanna and that legacy, or is there, is there a physical object down there? Some people have talked about Rhaegar's harp. Uh, you know, there's the rumor that dragon eggs might be uh, hidden away beneath Winterfell. Our, our friend uh, Natalie, at Paparati on Twitter, has been talking about for a while and recently put out an essay on Reddit about uh, the possibility that it is Egg the Fifth's ring, his yes. Targaryen ring that we see come up in Duncan Egg, that is down there in the crypts in Lyanna's tomb as a, as a sign of... John's uh, Targaryen heritage, but uh, to be sure, s- something is down there. This is definitely leading to something. I'm, what I'm curious about is if how this is intersects at all with Mance's desire to get down there and hmm. dance with dragons. Yeah, and if and if whatever what if whatever is waiting in the crypts ends up getting unearthed as part of uh, that gambit on his part. Yeah, I'm I'm curious as well what Mance is up to and what he wants down there. 
John has a number of these dreams, right? He has the a same similar sort yeah. of dream in John 8 from A Storm of Swords, where he doesn't want to go down to the crypts, but he's being led down there anyways. And John talks about in this chapter how he this is a recurring dream for him. This is something that he is this is a dream he's constantly having. Um, for me, I wonder whether some of the stuff in it, like the empty halls of Winterfell, how no one is there, how Arya, Bran, and Rickon and Rob are all gone, that seems like potential foreshadowing for the sacking of Winterfell in the Clash of Kings, where Ramsay Snow sacks Winterfell. Also, potentially. Sure more subtle foreshadowing of the Red Wedding and how characters like Rob and Catelyn are all going to die and all the people, many of the people from Winterfell are going to die at the Red Wedding. But one of the things I really like about this dream is that it really reminds me of Old Nan's story of the Long Night and the Last Hero. Um, There's that whole motif of darkness that's in both of these in the dream as well as in this vision. So in Old Nan's story, it's, quote, in that darkness, the others came for the first time. They were cold things, dead things that hid iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. And, you know, in the world of ice and fire, Maester Yandel talks about how some old wives tales indicated that there was no light for a generation during the long night. And John's dream itself, what it says is, you know, and then I find myself in the front of the doors of the crypts. It's black inside. I can see the steps spiraling down and then farther down. It's ice. So I start down, feeling the walls I descend with no torch to light the way. It gets darker and darker until I want to scream. So I kind of wonder whether Martin's kind of doing foreshadowing of the Red Wedding, the second Winterfell, but also potentially foreshadowing of Jon Snow as the last hero. The, the last hero and who is the last hero or the prince that was promised or Azora High Reborn has animated a lot of fan discussion. But I think Jon Snow would feature front and center if it is one person, which I'm not necessarily saying it is, is it, that it's one person, one individual. But John is featured strongly in my mind and among some others as well as being the person who's most likely to be the last hero or the prince that was promised or as Hora Hyreborn for that matter. Yeah, that's a great catch about the uh, connection to Old Nan's story. It definitely seems very similar in the, the description of darkness and no one being alive and just the atmosphere of horror. It also strikes me as a parallel for Jamie's weirwood dream and his yes. of swords. Uh, he is also descending to the darkness beneath his home, Casterly Rock in that case. And there's a sense of something horror and doom-laden waiting for him in the darkness down there. And that's that's obviously a dream very infused with last hero imagery. You know, having the, the swords of the the sword of light, the, the torch, the, the light in the darkness to quote the Night's Watch vows while you're being surrounded by darkness and the literally the spirits of the undead, which is a great, you know... Uh, analogy for the for the whites and the others, so I could definitely see uh, Martin kind of setting up John as a last hero figure with this dream, and I think you can see it gradually coming true as the story gets closer to winter and closer to the long night. There's uh, John has the line about the dream: uh, even the ravens are gone from the rookery, yeah. and the stables are full of bones. And this is what happens to Winterfell by the time we get back to it in Dance with Dragons. The the ravens have all kind of flown away from Lewin's rookery. They send them hang around the weirwood, but they're just kind of they're gone and wild for the most part now. And uh, the stable collapses at one point under the weight of the snow, killing a bunch of horses. So there you go. The stable is full of bones. So interesting. It's coming true. Yeah, it's all interesting stuff, man. Like uh, sometimes when I when we're talking about these these different visions and dreams, and we kind of put our ideas together, it's cool because we hopefully are, are seeing something of what George is talking about. 
and being able to kind of read the tea leaves and kind of get in deep on it. It helps to kind of bring both our perspectives in because we hopefully are presenting a, a fuller picture of, of, of what George is, is talking about here. So I think it's really cool. I think all those the things that you mentioned are accurate and potentially true. And I'm, you know, I really hope that there's some sort of I, I hope maybe that at some point at the end of the dream, John always wakes up just before, you know, and he's about to scream. I think at some point it'd probably be good for him to actually progress forward in the dream to where he he has to like encounter the Kings of Winter and has to encounter something in his past. And I think that's will be part of his awakening that of his Targaryen heritage, most likely, in my opinion. But I think it's something we're going to have to see come the Winds of Winter um, when John is either in Ghost or when he, after he's resurrected and reborn as John Stark or John Snow or whoever he's going to be when he comes back from the dead. Well said, sir. I think that's definitely going to happen. We're going to complete this dream, so to speak. I wonder if maybe it'll happen while he's in Ghost. He'll have like he'll have some sort of crazy otherworldly vision that finishes the dream. Maybe after Melisandre brings him back, maybe he'll go to Winterfell and that's when the dream will be complete. Like I'm thinking of um, my favorite part of the, the book Ender's Game is is you know when he's been playing. This this like online tutorial game while he's uh, training to be a, a a young general, and then when he goes to the aliens, uh, one of the aliens' homeworlds after he's wiped out their race, he finds the that game world recreated that they kind of read his mind over the airwaves and like created that game world for him to wander through so he could kind of complete the game. Interesting. Yeah. So I wonder if some, we're gonna have some kind of similar scene with John where he goes back to Winterfell and like physically completes this. This dream that never finishes, and he finally sees what's waiting for him. Yeah, I sure hope so. I'm really, really looking forward to that. But let's talk a little bit more in depth about Jon Snow. Not about him as the prince that was promised, necessarily. Not about him as the last hero. Not about his dreams. Not about his interesting stuff with Sam, his character-building moments that we get in this chapter. But his actual name. Because... We get a little bit of interesting dialogue between Samuel Pippar and Jon Snow in this chapter. We certainly do. Another a potential foreshadowing bit. If you want, you can call me Sam. My mother calls me Sam. You can call him Lord Snow, Pip said as he came up to join them. You don't want to know what his mother calls him. Well, yeah, we do. What is it, Pip? <laughs> what, what did his mother call him? That's something we would eagerly like to know about. Yeah. Because John, John almost certainly came from Ned, given John Aaron. Sure. Uh, as as his kind of cover story, but uh, the question of what John's quote unquote Targaryen name, what his birth name is, what Rhaegar and or Lyanna intended for him to be named, is something that has been discussed a lot in the fandom, especially since the last season of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I, it was interesting. I was uh, if you follow History of Westeros on Twitter, which I certainly certainly encourage those of you who are listening to this podcast to do. Uh, Aziz was talking about how this has been a discussion for. 20 plus years now about what is John's actual birth name. I remember really enjoying the theory. I think it was by Joe Magician, someone who we've cited several times here on this podcast of the idea of his name being Jaehaerys because frankly, Jaehaerys is the best Targaryen king. And if you think differently, you're wrong and you're ugly. End of story. Um, well, I guess you could think differently. <laughs> but, but of course, but of course. But Jaehaerys was the best. Okay. And, and Alisanne was the best too. Like they're both like the best Targs out there and well, we, we can talk about that at a future juncture. But in season seven of Game of Thrones, it's revealed that Jon Snow's birth name is Aegon. And, you know, this has led to a fair amount of consternation in the fandom, whether that's actually Jon's name or not. 
you know, fans, again, had thought that John's birth name was going to be Jaharis or perhaps even Amon, but definitely not Aegon, right? Because, you know, Rhaegar, Rhaegar already had a son named Aegon. This is just kind of that usual, and to use kind of some of the terminology that's kind of floated around, that usual uh, David Benioff and Dan Weiss fuckery that they do with their fan fiction and all those types of things. You know, and Rhaegar already had a son named Aegon, like I said before. But not so fast. Yeah, as... as uh Easy it is to kind of latch onto that as an invention of the show. There are definitely some hints that uh, John's birth name could have, in fact, been Aegon. And yeah, I liked all the all the other theories. I'm I'm kind of attached to the Aemon one personally, <laughs> just because Aemon is the one is the Targaryen that John has actually interacted with, and uh, because Aemon was the one that Rhaegar was in contact with about the prince that was promised and the prophecies surrounding John. Yeah, but there are it it, it might not be an invention of the show because yeah, there are there are hints in the books that point in this direction. Right. So there's a couple quotes, and one of them actually comes from Amon. The first one is from A Dance of Dragons, John 2, in which Amon tells John, quote, It takes a man to rule, an Aegon, not an egg. Kill the boy and let the man be born. So that seems to be a little bit more on the subtle side of John's name potentially being Aegon, because if, and I think this is likely going to happen in the books too, if John is going to become King John, King of the North, or potentially sit the Iron Throne. We could talk about all that at another at another juncture. It seems like that he's saying that John needs to become Aegon, you know, not an egg. And, you know, Aemon is talking again in this section about his brother uh, Egg, who from the Duncan Egg novellas, and when he becomes the king, how he has to become a man and become Aegon and no longer Egg. So I think that might be transference for John becoming Aegon or John's birthday being Aegon. But then we also have Danny's House, the Undying Vision, where Danny sees uh, some interesting things. The quote is, the man had her brother's hair, had her brother's hair, but he was taller and his eyes were dark indigo rather than lilac. This is Rhaegar. Aegon, he said to a woman nursing a newborn baby in a golden wooden bed. What better name for a king? Will you make a song for him? The woman asked. He has a song, the man replied. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. And that is, again, from Danny's fourth chapter from A Clash of Kings. Um, this is one is actually kind of interesting because I think a lot of fans assumed that Rhaegar is talking about Aegon, his son, via Elia. But there's a potential that Danny's vision is not necessarily literal, that Danny is seeing the birth of of Aegon the sixth, as in Aegon, Elia, and Rhaegar's child, but is potentially seeing the birth of Jon Snow and Aegon. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting to consider whether there's um, there's something a bit more there to this this vision, whether it's actually is something of Jon Snow. Is, she's seeing Jon Snow here in this vision. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to consider. My kind of stumbling block for Jon's Targaryen name being Aegon has been the presence of Rhaegar's other son named Aegon. And that Rhaegar seemed convinced at this point, if this is a literal vision, that it was that child who was going to fulfill the prophecies. Uh, and that, from what he says in it, John was just his third head, that he needed, you know, three heads of the dragon, and that his Elia was too frail to have another kid. So that's why he went out and had a kid with Lyanna. But uh, people have suggested multiple ways that that's not the case. Like you say, it might not be a literal vision. It might be Martin kind of sneakily referring to the, the birth of that third head as, as the fulfillment of the prophecy. And it could also be that Rhaegar found out something in between that moment and running off with Lyanna that changed his mind. Maybe he talked to the ghost of High Heart or some other prophetic figure and, and 
convinced himself that it was the third head it was actually going to be the central messiah figure after all Rhaegar appears to have changed his perspective on who exactly this prophecy was referring to a couple times so that wouldn't be that surprising yeah I, I think to me Aegon being John's name kind of makes the most sense for someone like Rhaegar who is very much influenced I think that's the, mo- the most polite way I can put it by prophecy and seemingly sure. influenced by the need to bring prophecy, by the, by the need to fulfill prophecy. So it would seem that having another Aegon would be in keeping with who Rhaegar was. And there's also, there's a, there's a darker possibility too in my mind that perhaps the Ghost of Highheart told Rhaegar that his firstborn son was going to die and there was no way around it. You know, think of it, maybe, yeah, maybe it was like possible. a Valonqar type thing. You know, if you think about it, like there's no way the prophecy is, is going to be fulfilled. Aegon is going to die. So you must have another son named Aegon. That seems, that seems very much in keeping with potentially Rhaegar as we understand him. Although we, we, again, we don't have a full understanding of who Rhaegar was as a person, but it seems in keeping with him being highly, highly influenced by prophecy. Certainly true. It's, and again, it's difficult to tell because we only have bits and pieces of Rhaegar and it's all from other people's POVs. I, I do like the theory that the ghost of Highheart told him that and he kind of like accepted it as a collateral thing and like, you know, decided to name the next one Aegon. That does illustrate the kind of Brutality that goes with living your whole life by prophecy, which which does fit. Yes, it's weird to me that he said to Jamie when he was heading off to the Trident that when this is done, I'm going to call a council and make some changes because that does seem to indicate that he's going to make it, or at least he thinks he is, and that he's going to be king. So how are how are his wife and kids going to be killed in this case? Because his wife and kids were only killed because he lost at the Trident. Right. But again. Rhaegar could have just been told by the Ghost of Highheart they're doomed in a very vague fashion. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. He might think it's going to happen even if he defeats Robert. So there are there are little inconsistencies with this. But what I'm saying is there's no inconsistency here that could not be explained just by learning more about Rhaegar. Yeah. And I think like when we like debating and thinking about these things, you also have to just remember that there is still story left in two more books and more backstory about True. what happened all with Rhaegar and with Robert's Rebellion. One of the things, one of the reasons why George R. Martin, for instance, didn't consent to allowing for a Robert's Rebellion miniseries or prequel series is because he wants, he plans on telling the full story in his books. So to me, that indicates that we're going to learn a lot more about Rhaegar and a lot more about what was motivating him and potentially if. John's name is indeed Aegon. Why he named his son Aegon after he had another son named named Aegon? That seems like something that's going to be important backstory that we're going to be that's going to be revealed. I don't know quite how. I think Bran is probably a really good venue where that's going to happen um, because Bran is able to see through the Werewoods and potentially see the past in some fashion that will, he'll be able to provide a venue for us to understand the methodology behind what seems to me right now to be Rhaegar's madness. Well said, sir. Yeah, this is a puzzle we simply don't have all the pieces for at this point. Yeah, but it makes it fun to discuss, though, right? Because if you don't have all the pieces, you know, you have something to to talk about. Oh, exactly. You know? That's what makes it intriguing. And yeah, we're going to get, you know, have a lot of fun when we get to that vision of Rhaegar in the House of the Undying, Jamie's memories of him. Uh, All of of this stuff is, is intriguing speculation. It is that. And then there's a, just a, a final quote from from the books, and this this comes from from the World of Ice and Fire, and it's talking about Aegon the Second and Aegon the Third, 
And this potentially is a way that maybe Rhaegar rationalized it too if he wasn't abandoning his firstborn child to doom, uh, in which he, in which Maester Yandel talks about, um, talks about Aegon the Second and Aegon the Third in this way. It says, "Quote, and rather than mourn her late husband, Rhaenyra at last wed her uncle, Prince Daemon. In the last days of 120 AC, she even delivered to him his first son, whom she named Aegon after the Conqueror." When she learned of it, Queen Alicent was said to be enraged, for her own eldest son also bore the Conqueror's name. The two Aegons came to be known as Aegon the Elder and Aegon the Younger. And that is from The World of Ice and Fire. So this quote to me is not necessarily direct one for one what's going to happen between John and, you know, Aegon or potentially young Griff, who's very much not Aegon the Sixth, that is Rhaegar's son. But I think it potentially has some clues to us here in that Aegon the Second was Aegon the Third's uncle, and they both had the same name, but there was obviously some controversy around it in that Queen Allison was pretty upset that Rhaenyra had named her son via Daemon Aegon because her own son was named Aegon as well. So they have this naming convention of Aegon the Elder and Aegon the Younger, which is something we see in our own history where you have someone like Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger in Roman times, or Cato the Elder and Cato the Younger as well, also in kind of Republican Rome. But I think the final point I would bring up in defense of Aegon being John's name is it seems like a detail that David Benioff and Dan Weiss would ask George, and it seems like a detail that George would reveal to them. It would be kind of... I don't know. I don't know the best way to describe it. I think it would be difficult for me to imagine a scenario where George either A, didn't tell them, and so they just went with Aegon, or B, that George told them Aegon when he, in fact, had the name of Jaehaerys or Aemon in mind for Jon Snow's birth name. But, you know, opinions vary about this. This is kind of a, an interesting discussion of uh, of topic or interesting topic of discussion, and I think it will continue to be one. I certainly agree. And yeah, you bring up a good point that it does, it has it has the ring and the feel of something that came from George. In the same way, like when uh, they were crowning John King of the North back in season six, and overall I was not a fan of how that plot was executed and that it John made some mistakes that didn't really seem to be reckoned with and they were acting like he was kind of more heroic than he actually was. But something that did stand out to me as a detail was when one of the lords referred to him as the White Wolf. You know, he is the White Wolf, I think was the line. Like that sends, that said to me, is like, ah, that's someone, that's going to be his nickname when he gets into northern politics to whatever extent he does. If he is crown king in the north, I bet that's something they got from him. Absolutely. So certain details stand out like that, I agree. And I also think it would, it's, it will be interesting to see how this plays into the story of young Griff, who is the kid who thinks he's Egan Rhaegar's son, but isn't. And that makes a wonderful contrast with John, who might actually be Aegon, the son of Rhaegar, but does not know he is. Yes. There are a lot of kind of interesting contrasts and parallels with between John and Young Griff that way. And it kind of adds to the, you know, for me, the core of Young Griff's story, that what makes it work is like the sadness of a, of a character who is a puppet, but who thinks he's the protagonist. Yes. Who's just, it's all performance, but he doesn't know that. And that would just add another layer to it if even that name that was taken for him is actually going to be taken up by somebody else. You know, he's he's not even going to be remembered as Aegon, son of Rhaegar, that that's actually John's destiny. And young Griff isn't going to even have that. That kind of adds a layer to that sadness for me. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So I think that about gets us for Game of Thrones, John 4. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Nauticast. 
As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Acast, all the great places where you get your podcasts. We really appreciate everyone's ears, your support. Thank you indeed, folks. You can find us at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter, and our email is Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And we will be announcing our next Patreon special episode next week when we uh, cover Edward Six. So keep your ears open for that. Absolutely. And next week, we will be joining back in, as Emmett said, with Detective Ned Stark as he hunts for clues in Tobomot's armory. Come a Game of Thrones, Edward Six. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and we will see you all next week. Take care, everybody.